Welcome to Green Minds Think Alike, uh, the first episode here in Detroit at uh, the USDN Conference 2019. And joining me today is Vincent Martinez with Architecture 2030. On the previous episode, you might recall I was speaking a little bit about um, the architecture, architecture 2030 proposals that are in the newest uh, or hope to be in the in the uh, 2021 code, um, both residential and commercial. So I thought it'd be a, good to get Vincent to join the podcast and give us a little bit of background. And uh, so Vincent, why don't you introduce yourself and then kind of give us a brief history of how Architecture 2030 came about. Sure. Thanks, Chris, for having me. Um, I'm the Chief Operating Officer for Architecture 2030. I've been with the organization since we founded as a nonprofit in 2006. Um, but our, our origin actually goes back further. Our CEO and founder Edward Masria is a renowned architect, author, educator, and was doing some investigation on the building sector's contribution to climate change in the early 2000s um, and wrote a very pivotal article that was published in Metropolis Magazine, a very renowned um, arc design publication. It was called Architects Pollute. That uh, was the cover image, very provocative uh, set of blueprints emitting uh, smokestacks. And the article was really about the building sector's contribution to climate change through the emissions of, via the energy consumption of the building sector. Um, and so that work was, he started doing that pro bono as part of his firm and going out um, in the sort of lecture circuit, sharing this information with his peers and colleagues, and really trying to light a fire, the one that he experienced himself from as a peer to his uh, to other architects and design community to say that we're part of the problem, we should be part of the solution set. Um, and a lot of the f- uh, philanthropic community saw Ed's work that he was doing pro bono as part of his firm and asked who was funding him and he mm-hmm. said no one uh, and they said well we really want to support it and he said well I, we thank you but no thank you we're, we really want to make sure we have the flexibility and autonomy to get the job done and I want to write reports etc well after a number of years they kind of weighed down on him and uh, really wanted to make sure that his uh, impact was scaled and mm-hmm. so he started a nonprofit organization left his arch- successful architecture practice to the other partners in the firm uh, and started Architecture 2030 in 2006. Uh, that's where I came in. And the his initial set of um, goals was called the 2030 Challenge, and it was a challenge to the design community for new construction and major renovation to immediately reduce the fossil fuel energy consumption of those projects by 50%, um, and then to to reach carbon neutrality for new construction and major renovation by 2030. Um, And our work has evolved since that point. The American Institute of Architects was one of the first organizations to adopt that challenge, and they developed their own commitment program, the 2030 Commitment, uh, with AIA, which there are over 300 architecture firms across the globe that are reporting to AIA on their progress towards that challenge targets. Mm -hmm. Um, But what's interesting um, is that that's all on the new construction side, and there's really a couple items that are absolutely required if we're going to reach our carbon goals immediately on new construction. We're adding about 300 billion square meters to the global building stock and put that in perspective over the next 30 years. And and put that in perspective, we currently have almost 300 billion square meters. So everything we've built out since the dawn of time, we're planning on replicating that, building an entire new planet on this one in the next three decades. It's astronomical. So in order to make sure that those new buildings don't add to the contribution on on climate change is that we need to make sure that they come in extremely energy efficient, which is why it's so important that we have national model building codes and that those codes are adopted and implemented in every jurisdiction. 
And what's fascinating about that is only the global north really has mandatory or significant voluntary building codes on energy efficiency. So the global south is where most of that construction will take place um, over the next three decades. And it's really important that we scale our building codes so that they're adaptable and usable in the global south, which also means that they have to have a prescriptive component. Um, otherwise, they're not really uh, applicable. There's not the software education or understanding both on the design side nor in implementation verification across the global south. So prescriptive, particularly not national model building codes are required for energy efficiency. But we recognize that energy efficiency is a great tool, provides a lot of co-benefits to reaching our climate goals, but it's not the only solution. We certainly see that energy efficiency can drive down, it's cost effective, and we want to take advantage of that as much as we can. Um, but we have to recognize that it's also about what kind of fuels we're burning in our buildings uh, or to supply our buildings. And the source of that energy is what really emits the emissions. And so there's uh, two approaches to getting at that beyond energy efficiency. And one is particularly about the electricity we consume. Um, about in the global, at the US level, buildings consume about three quarters of the electricity that we create. Most of that is still fossil fuel based. And so there's a great opportunity to overlay on top of energy efficiency codes for new construction, um, renewable energy requirements so that those new buildings bring in their own renewable sources. They're not just taking what the grid gives them, but they're actually coming in with a carbon-free solution on top. Um, so that's a part of pivotal part of our um, voluntary uh, appendix to the ICC 2021 proposal. It's called a Zero Code Renewable Energy Standard, which would allow voluntarily jurisdictions to adopt a framework that would require their buildings in their jurisdiction to bring their own renewables along with them for the electricity side. And that includes both on-site generation, which is highly valued because it it's, oh, there's an ownership and a longevity and additionality to the grid, but also through um, through utility purchasing programs, uh, whether that's a, a power purchase agreement or virtual power purchase agreement, green tariffs, it's a whole variety, including renewable energy credits, which should be valued differently than if we were to put them on site. So there's a framework for that in this renewable energy appendix, which we hope will pass mm -hmm. uh, in the next coming weeks, um, and then will be immediately available for those cities that are willing to interested in adopting it. And what's great about that is it's tied to the ICC process, which many jurisdictions are required to follow. So many jurisdictions are already interested in applying this renewable standard and are doing so outside of the ICC process because they're not connected to it um, or, or required to by statute, but many are really required to go through this code-making body. So that's why that's so critical. Um, the second uh, piece on the sourcing of energy is actually about all of the natural gas and heating oil that we burn in our buildings. So we actually emit quite a bit on site as well. In many cases, that's used for primarily for heating the space and the hot water. So the concepts that are emerging on building electrification and um, getting out rid of the fossil fuels on site is also a critical element that is only starting to be addressed, but is a significant one for new construction. We can build many uh, building types in all climates completely electric, and then when you add on that renewable electricity that was part of the zero code renewable energy appendix, is now you have a carbon free building. So the combination between electrification and clean energy is really where the crux is for new construction, and we can do all of that cost effectively for new construction. The other big piece that Architecture 2030 has been working on as part of this, the building landscape is on existing buildings. We've been working, um, the reason I'm here at this meeting at the Urban Sustainability Directors Network is we're working with 11 building, uh, 11 cities on building sector decarbonization and many of them are focused on the existing building stock. Um, I'm leading a workshop on big building policy for decarbonization and small building policy. We recognize that there are um, a smaller number 
build uh, large buildings in a city, they're responsible for about 50 to 60 percent of their emissions in the building sector. So those are easier in terms of an implementation to, to regulate and to validate their performance. And we're starting to see more big building policies emerge. And that's where we've, we focus most of our energy as municipalities and jurisdictions. There's a whole other uh, piece of the pie. The other half of energy cons uh, emissions in the building sector are in small buildings. There are hundreds of thousands of small buildings in any particular city responsible for another half of their emissions. How do you get at such a variety of building stock, uh, both in terms of age and typology? Um, and how do you phase that in over time so you don't overwhelm the workforce and you build the capacity? So we look at things like intervention points, for example, in terms of policies, whether that's point of sale when the building exchanges hands, there's money exchanging hands or financing that's usually when the building is vacant looking at those types of opportunities um, especially on the equity side maybe point of lease in which they're uh, renting out to a, the property to a new tenant it's an opportunity to get in there as an intervention and combining those factors of energy efficiency renewable energy and electrification in the building at that particular time so that's on the existing building front the large buildings i should say are looking more at date certain policies so um, you've got washington dc new york san francisco now has phases in uh, requirements for large buildings that will happen in 2025 2030 2035 2040 etc and that provides uh, targeted policies that have longevity and consistency which is excellent for the private sector because it's all about their capital improvement cycle when are they actually going in and doing renovations they can package all those measures together and uh, rocky mountain studios great some done some great research that says that the cost of these deep retrofits from an energy and a carbon standpoint are about a quarter of what they would be if you do them on cycle so you've got to do them combined with this capital improvement cycle and then the third leg of the stool here on the built environment is focused on the embodied emissions of buildings and materials and infrastructure uh, two particular high-impact materials, concrete and steel, are responsible for about 20% of global sectoral emissions, huge, uh, and we use much of that in the built environment and the infrastructure that supports buildings. Um, so there's a great opportunity from the design community as well as policymakers to get out embodied emissions um, by looking at prescriptive standards, what are the attributes of low carbon steel or concrete, looking at alternatives like mass timber, for example, um, but also um, how they optimize design. How do we use less um, either by using existing buildings so we don't have to add a whole new building and all that infrastructure and all that carbon. Um, so reuse and infill in cities is also critical. Um, but we need to change the global manufacturing uh, and we can with a small number of large firms who are responsible for a lot of the construction uh, globally. So we've been working um, with those folks. We have a, a summit that was uh, held in Chicago a few weeks ago called Carbon Positive uh, that focuses on the embodied carbon issue and rallied uh, about 20% of global construction um, to move forward on embodied immediate adoption of embodied carbon policies, especially on concrete and steel and the structure and substructure. So we're, we're at a very pivotal moment where that's in the awareness, and now we need to build the capacity and understanding about how we tackle such a large global supply chain. That's fantastic. I mean, I, there are a lot of questions. I normally try to keep these short, but um, so I'll, I'll try to maybe hit on just a, a couple of things. Um, can you talk about the approach you know, it's unique in the in the fact that you're going kind of the code route versus sort of a, a stretch like a lead or something along those lines. And can you talk about the decision to, to kind of go this route? Obviously, there's potential for more impact going that way. You also 
spoke about how a lot of the codes are only adopted in the northern hemisphere how are you guys are you thinking about the southern hemisphere how you know are you hoping icc sort of is able to do that or are you guys trying to to look at that side of the coin um i'll leave it at that for now so if you want to just go from there uh, great great question chris so um there are standards like lead and, and other green building rating systems have valued renewable energy through that through their certifications and we certainly want to perpetuate that the question is about scale and how quickly we can scale renewable energy now is cost effective for utility grade now solar and wind are extremely cheap um you you mentioned about going code routes versus pers or performance routes or certification. You really need to affect all of buildings within a particular jurisdiction in order to rapidly accelerate renewable energy procurement, other because you're talking about such a large amount in terms of the contracts. Uh, so you, it's not just about one or two contracts. A lot of the virtual power purchase agreements right now have been through large corporations who are aggregating all of their businesses in order to make that work on a local stage, which we need to proliferate for a number of issues issues in terms of workforce and equity as well and, and resiliency is you need a, a policy at a jurisdictional level to accelerate what the states are currently doing. So there's I think there's an inherent tension between states and utilities having renewable portfolio standards that are honestly too far away. Even if they are highlighting that they're going to go 100% renewable electricity by 2035 or 2040, they're taking a, a high level view and a long-term view of transitioning orderly into a new system, which is important. You don't want any uh, downtime. But you also have a lot of cities who want to move uh, quickly and urgently on climate action. And so this is an effective opportunity for them to take control over the demand side uh, rather than focus on the supply side. Um, now, in terms of the ICC process, I mentioned it's tied. Many jurisdictions are tied to the ICC, so it's important to be a code. But we actually launched the zero code earlier, uh, about uh, two years ago, as an international standard to affect the policy making that was happening in China particularly. Uh, we've had a program in China now for the last three years and working with the local design institutes there um, and their standard making bodies and they've now introduced a zero net carbon code. Uh, it's voluntary and it's being used in select circles, but we've influenced the ability to understand that we're not just talking about on-site renewables, that at the scale of development, mid and high-rise buildings, that is the most of the development that's happening across the globe, it's really important that we understand the off-site component. And that's what the zero tool framework or the zero code framework allows for. Um, and that's really interesting in China, because if you talk to China, uh, Chinese designers or jurisdictions about zero net energy, we have to produce it all on site, they will completely tune you out. It's impossible for them to do it it's, uh, in terms of at scale. But when you start incorporating the grid and they're investing heavily in renewables, now it starts to make sense from a design standard. Um, and then as far as the global south is concerned, because they're still in the developing stages, they're developing a lot of their new infrastructure. So uh, renewables, in their case, is the most cost-effective type of new electricity generation. They're not considering new coal plants in most of the global south. Um, and in case they don't even have the gas infrastructure to provide that fuel, so they're jumping right to renewables. It's like going from landlines to cell phones. Um, and so there's, we hope that the renewable component will... Uh, propagate in, in the global south, and we're starting to see that at least from an energy source perspective, but we want the building stock to accelerate that transition and also provide resiliency um, through their own generation sources. Well, I, I know Ed Masria joined us in San Diego when we were there a couple of years ago, so it's it's fascinating to see, to me, how quickly it's it's starting to move on in that, in this arena, and it's definitely needed, and I 
can't commend you and him enough for taking on this challenge. Um, it's a huge undertaking, and just even a little bit at the apple that you guys have done already is just commendable. I, I, I can't thank you enough for, for taking this on. So, you know, just in closing, I, like I said, I was trying to keep this short here, but uh, if you had sort of one wish or one thing you would leave behind if you're talking to sustainability directors, what is sort of that two-minute elevator pitch or, or things that you're kind of hopeful for moving forward? Sure. I think one is to look at the building sector as an opportunity in your local jurisdictions. Um, not just focus on new construction, which has been the primary focus, and there, certainly we are again building out an entire planet, but the, the North American market, a lot of it is in the existing building stock. So focus on existing buildings and then open your toolbox beyond just energy efficiency and beyond just transparency to recognize where the emission sources really are, which is in the fuel choices. And look at renewable energy as an opportunity, leverage that demand side um, and your jurisdictional authority there. And also look at electrification, which is going to be required. You know, tr uh, natural gas was better than coal, and so we, uh, there was a big environmental movement to move to that. But now that's the new that's the new right, coal. Right. So how do we get uh, like uh, natural gas out of 70 million buildings in North America? I mean, these are huge challenges that need intervention points, but they have uh, a series of co-benefits from resilience to uh, supporting local communities and local jobs, air quality. Uh, air quality, health benefits. I mean, we really can hone all of this fun disparate funding sources for a variety of important issues into this particular solution set. So opening up that toolbox to recognize we have more tools than just energy efficiency and we have more value propositions than just comfort and cost savings. Well, Vincent, again, thank you. Uh, you know, I really appreciate you taking the time and for also being here. You know, I think it, it's, uh, it's great to have y your resources available to all of us in the sustainability world. So thanks again. I appreciate it. Thank you, Chris. All right.